So, questions for Sebastian Bolts up front. It'll be a very short one, because I know no, there'll be quite a few. No, we're okay. <laughs> um, I work um, in uh, the stu student welfare, but I also, I've run writing workshops um, in hospitals before. Um, and physicists, consultants and chaplains have all been to them. Um, and I think uh, it was uh, earlier on we were talking about voice and how you have a fixed voice when you're talking as, as someone professional and distance yourself. Um, but I found that when people are in workshops, they don't have time to polish or perfect anything or rewrite it. And it makes them more vulnerable and takes them out of their comfort zone. And I thought it's important that they have the chance to revel in the lies and fiction when they have to tell the truth so often the rest of the time. Hmm. Sorry, I don't want to answer. It wasn't really a question, question, was it? No, it was no. a <laughs> suggestion. Actually, yes. you can, actually, your voice is somehow freer and less, less constrained by an expectation. Is that the suggestion, Sarah, at all? Um, it's, it's more kind of... Uh, yeah, it's making themselves vulnerable because the patient probably feels like that a lot of the time. Right. So I think that's valuable. Is it an act of vulnerability, writing a, a book and then having it out there for all to... Well, I suppose to some people... So I think people vary, but you, I tend not to put in too many revealing, uh, self-revealing things. Well, you think you don't, hmm. but... Mm, <laughs> I was just re I was re refreshing my memory of human traces and there were some little things I thought, ooh, that's a bit raw. And I, I mean, you know, I, although I'm, I think Freud should have been struck off and should never have been able to practice. I mean, when he, the, point at which he sh he sh <laughs> the point at which he should have been struck off was when one of these poor girls came to him with a terrible abdominal pains and he gave her the full, you know, you're in love with your father-in-law thing and th uh, sent her away cured. And three weeks later, she died of stomach cancer. Mm. And his response to that was, how protean a disease hysteria is that it can take on the guise of another. Well, that's the end. That's the medical council end. Um, anyway, he wasn't because things were pretty slack in Vienna, and he did go on to um, he did go on to become a psychologist when he stopped being a neurologist uh, with insight. And undoubtedly, there are there are things that you reveal without meaning to reveal, uh, unquestionably so. But I don't feel particularly vulnerable on that. But I always say in, in creative writing classes, never write about your own experience. Mm. A write about someone of the opposite sex living in a different period from yourself, in a different country from yourself. That's what making it up, that's what being a novelist is. Mm -hmm. And that's the way to liberate yourself. Right. And you'll be surprised how, how good it might be. It sounds very difficult, I have to say. No, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> uh, <laughs> have we got any other, any other questions or comments? Oh, yep, just at the back there in the middle, next to Trevor. Uh, I'm Martin McCall. I'm a, a child and adolescent psychiatrist from Southampton. Thank you very, very much for this talk. Can I, can I check with you, since we've moved according to the timetable from, um, uh, what is it, doubt to lies, um, about your account of the emergence of human nature over the millennia, dating back to Shakespeare particularly, uh, but not much further before then, and you had a model of human nature that sort of validated voice hearing and so on in previous millennia. It's, it's plausible, but the data 
the evidence is very, 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 very scanty yeah. and dwindles faster than, than, the, than the story is constructed. Would you agree? Or yeah, are you yes, quite confident about that? Um, I suppose I feel that as a, as a novelist at, a, um, at an event, it's fun to throw things out and kick them around. And I think the Julian Jaynes book I'm talking about is scientifically certainly wrong in almost all its brain science, probably, because he, he believes that the right hemisphere of the brain effectively has no function at all, which may have been the view in 1970 when he wrote the book, but we now know that is absolutely not the case. And so it's a deeply flawed book, but it certainly has insights and very exciting insights the nature of voice hearing. When you've read that book, you will never read Homer or the Bible again in the same way. You will never think about voice hearing again in the same mm. way either. Mm. Um, but of course, the evidence is fantastically um, uh, sketchy and partial. And every week, um, key events seem to have to move by millions of years, yeah. new archaeological discoveries. So it's, it's very far from being, uh, I totally agree, very far from being scientific. I mean, of I'm course, though, Virginia Woolf did say that in or around 1910, human nature changed or human character change, which she'd be pushed to justify yeah. in terms of evidence. But I guess it, you know, at the, the frames with which we view and understand the world may well shift and evolve, but be yes, an evidence-free zone, I'm sure. I'm still yeah. puzzled what it was that happened then, actually. Uh, she saw the post-impressionist exhibition. Uh, yeah, That's yeah, what yeah, happened, and yeah. she had a fit of the vapors because she saw Matisse. Yeah, yeah. It was about yeah. modernism, wasn't it? You I see, think, this yeah. typical novelist in, you know, just exaggerating. <laughs> but just at the back there. Thank you. Yes, I'm uh, Gordon Stewart from Bristol. Um, in your wonderful book, Jerusalem, the biography, uh, which I find utterly enthralling, which Sebastian Fox wrote that one compared to uh, the, uh, the, 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 the fiction? I think that was Simon Montag, Simon Seabag oh. Montefiore. Sebastian, I do beg your pardon. No, I'm <laughs> one, I, but I do love your, your, uh, your, your novels too, so I do beg your pardon. <laughs> Yeah, Has so that ever happened that to you before? And right? Has that ever happened to you before where someone's congratulated you and thanked you enormously for something you've never even... Um, is that a first? Yeah, somebody once congratulated me on the book I'd written about a cat. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know what that one was either. But the Jerusalem biography is great. I'm with you on that. It's brilliant. <laughs> if you're writing biography, do you need to... Uh, we should definitely move on from that question, I think. It's <laughs> just... Uh, we have several questions, actually. We've got one at the back there from, from um, Claire Brill, I think. Just up, just at the top here. There we go. Yeah. Um, hello, I'm a DP in London, and I've just started reading Human Traces, and, and I've encountered the Olivier chap who clearly has significant mental illness. I just wondered how you did your research. Uh, Olivier, yes, uh, is the brother of one of the main characters, and he is a fairly straightforward standard schizophrenic. And I was interested in uh, looking at a character who had this illness before the word had been invented. What a terrible word it is, by the way. Uh, completely misleading. Um, and I wanted to see what sort of care existed, and the care that existed in rural France was him being manacled to the wall of the stable. Um, and as for research into schizophrenia... Um, I have been unlucky enough to know, because it's such a common disease, um, two of the boys in my football 11 at school developed it. I live next door to a boy. My godmother's son developed it. 
Um, and I read a lot of books, and um, I did some research, and a gentleman in the audience now, who is an NHS psychiatrist, was kind enough to show me some videos he'd done of schizophrenic patients. And I went to meet a woman, a patient, who was unbelievably enlightening. Um, she was having a good time. I could tell you much more about it, but um, it, wasn't, it wasn't that hard because it's such a prevalent disease. One in 100 people appears to have psychosis. Um, and you know, what interested me about it was, is this connected with our, our superiority over other species? Is this the price one in 100 of us pays for our absurdly over-evolved brains? We do not, in order to out-fight for resources our competitive primates, we do not need to have produced all of Mozart's symphonies. <laughs> so something funny went on. Gentleman in the red, just at the front there. Hi, um, my name's David, I'm from London. Sebastian, thank you very much. Can you say which of your characters has come back to haunt you personally the most and why? Um, I suppose the one who's come back to me most often because the book doesn't seem to go away is Stephen, the main character in Birdsong. Um, and he's, he, he was a character that I assembled, really, to meet the demands of the theme of the book and the requirements that should be on him. So quite often you make a character in a book for quite negative reasons. A, everything you do in a book, you, your first principle in any sentence, in anything, is to avoid cliché. So he wasn't going to be a blue-eyed officer, and he wasn't going to be a cheery, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag. So that, you know, you're already on the way by, by not having stereotypes. But he's, he's a kind of, uh, I think he, he's come back uh, most to me. But um, Charlotte Gray is a character I like too, and that book is essentially a 450-page psychoanalysis of someone coming to terms with the nature of what happened in her childhood and why that caused her to project her feelings onto a country occupied by a foreign power. Um, so, uh, but when, when uh, by the way, is, are there any GPs who are gonna give me a diagnosis for the... <laughs> <laughs> the they will, <coughs> yeah, we'll get, you'll have, you'll have a, at least, well, you'll have, by the end of the evening, you'll have at least seven diagnoses without a shadow. I, of I have nothing against private medicine, uh, I will pay. If, um... Oh, you'll now have 72 <laughs> diagnoses. Uh, <laughs> Um, I think we've got one question at the front here from Mark. We, yep. Is there anyone in the top row? Okay, I'll get to you. I'll get right to you. And can we get a microphone to someone at the top on the right? Thanks. Hi, I'm Mark Waters. I'm a GP, actually, from about an hour away. Uh, maybe later we should speak. I've got some ideas for you. <laughs> um, actually, I want to talk about narrative and story making. Uh, and in my interaction with my patients, uh, something I aim towards uh, and don't always succeed for all sorts of different contingent reasons, but uh, something I aim towards is enabling my patients to construct a narrative that's more helpful to their situation than the one perhaps they have at, at the present time. So I'm very conscious of story making being part of the job that I do. And I'm aware that that's your job, story making, but in a very different way. I mind that in my professional work, that's, that's a co-creation of a story, whereas yours is very individual. Uh, and I wonder if you saw, my question was really, do, do you see any link at all between those two processes? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, the, the, art, the art of creating narrative in stories is simply timing. Uh, you, the storyteller, know 
know what's happened, and you simply release information out of order, and it's the timing of the release that keeps the reader intrigued and hooked and so on. And, I mean, if you think of a Sherlock Holmes story, um, someone is murdered in a villa in Epsom. Sherlock Holmes knows perfect, I mean, uh, Conan Doyle knows perfectly well why this was. It was because of some dark doing in the Veld or in the, on the Patan frontier where a group of people were, you know, being unfaithful with each other or had a sort of financial scam that went wrong. And the sort of presentation, the symptom, uh, which is that someone dies in a villa in Epsom, is you have to sort of unravel that. And he just lets you see bits, bits and pieces as we go along. It's a very, very medical um, process, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, very terribly like a Freud. I mean, Sherlock Holmes' short story and Freudian case, early case history are almost identical in the way they proceed. Sherlock Holmes is slightly more scientific, that's the only thing. Um, <laughs> and the, 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 fall, the lost British Empire is the unconscious. It's, an, it's a nailed on. Um, but I think it's, it's about the order of release of information. And I know that doctors have this thing that it's not until the patient is leaving the surgery they say, ooh, Oh, and I'm not sleeping that well. And, uh, and I think that's interesting, and I, I think that's almost certainly the case. But you talk about making the narrative between the two of you, but it, it, it must be between the two of you, and it mustn't be imposed by the doctor, I guess, as Freud did. And so I keep on bashing him. Leave him alone. I'll stop the F word completely now. Um, but, yeah, I think it's, it's a question of timing, and uh, sometimes you have to go with a bit of stuff you know is... is flannel and padding and you have to look behind it and, and, and guess and it's pretty interesting actually and but the other thing is that I think sometimes there isn't a complete story and I think particularly this is true in, in psychological medicine that there isn't really a big pattern there's just a minor screw up and a passage of time and a degree of kindness and a cup of tea and maybe you know some sleeping pills over a fortnight might do it and that there isn't necessarily a whole Sherlock Holmesian backstory of Afghanistan. That's what you're going to get now. Isn't <laughs> there was a, is there a question at the top? Fine. In which case, I'd like a big round of applause, please, for. <laughs> <laughs>